Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with psychologist Marcus Apple. It was recorded in November 2023. Marcus is Professor of Media Communication at the University of Würzburg in Germany. His work sits at the intersection of psychology and communication science, with major research areas including life in the digital age, media and reality, and, most pertinent to our conversation, narratives and persuasion. Amongst other things, Marcus and I discussed the ability of stories to impact people's attitudes and behaviours, what makes some stories more persuasive than others, and some caution that communicators should keep in mind when using the powerful tool that is storytelling. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Marcus Apple. From your perspective, how can communication help in humanity's response to the climate crisis in the first place? We need an environmentally literate public, a public that's willing to act, and not least acting in a way that democracy works, such as voting, such as pressuring politicians to do stuff. Because in the end, I think it's politicians and leaders of big organizations that need to act on climate change. Things get forgotten easily, it seems. So uh, there are always different topics on the agenda. Climate change is a big topic, but the salience of the whole thing, um, that could be reduced from time to time. And, and that's a problem. Before we dig into how narrative persuasion works, I wondered if you could give a definition of narrative, a kind of working definition, as it relates to this topic. Uh, we define narratives or stories. I use these words in a synonymous way. Um, they're defined as causally connected series of events. What surrounds us a lot is fictional stories, such as series on TV, novels that people read or, or listen to. They were invented by some authors who are creative people who invent things related to the reality, but new and fresh, and the people need not have lived. Stories is also uh, non-fictional stories. For example, much that you uh, learn in the newspapers and news websites, it's also stories, connected series of events, right? So uh, that's also a form of stories. In the last five years or so, people use narratives to describe series of arguments that are kind of connected in a, in a certain way, in a certain direction. And it is related to this definition of narrative in a like linguistic way, but it's not the same, I think. How does narrative differ from other types of communication? How do we know when we are dealing with a narrative, a story, rather than something else? That's a good one. So, uh, so what are not stories? If that definition is used, non-stories are, for example, lists of arguments that are used in persuasion a lot. Like, why should I not eat meat, for example? Like this and that, and there could be a list of arguments. Until the 1990s, people thought that that's the way how we should think of argumentation, at, at least in psychology, that was very dominant back then, like lists of arguments. 
So that's a non-story. If I explain uh, ex negativo what uh, stories are, but that's maybe not satisfactory. So I think the concept of uh, narrativity plays a role. So a lot is a story, but not all is high on the story quality. And what is narrativity? What is the story quality? It's characters who have goals. Some have good intentions, some have bad intentions, some are good people or good characters, but they have bad intentions, so a little complexity or what have you, and then they have uh, something that they want to achieve, and there's a conflict, and then there's a resolution. There's an exposition where you learn. Most of the stories have a happy ending nowadays. Prototypical, a high narrativity story would be a blockbuster movie, popular novel, winning Pulitzer Prizes or so. Less narrative uh, would be if you wouldn't have these characters with goals, just characters who are doing things. That could also be interesting to read, for example. That could be a high literary value, for example, but less narrativity, I'd say. There's actually a really fascinating book by a guy called McGee, and it looks at the structures of stories. And he has an archplot, antiplot, and mini plot, and they're kind of plotted on a triangle. It's a fascinating uh, way of looking at story structures. In the last years, there are also um, several uh, uh, studies out that use big data analysis and then try to put together a taxonomy of these plots. Some have seven major plot lines or storylines, and some have six or whatever, and they give them fancy names. It's interesting to think that all the stories, uh, these different fictional stories I'd, I'd like to add, they follow a, a limited set of uh, story arcs. Yeah, I mean, at the end of all of these episodes, I kind of pulled together the biggest takeaways, both for myself and for the people listening. And surely one of them is these patterns, these structures for stories have been working for thousands of years. Use them. So now that we've kind of seen how narrative is distinct from other types of communication in terms of form, I wonder if you could explain a little about how it differs in terms of how it is cognitively received by those exposed to it. What I use and many people use as a metaphor is the metaphor of transportation, that people get mentally transported into the world of a story, be it a movie or, or a novel or a short story or, or a news reportage. You get mentally involved, a lot of intention devoted to that world, imagery, you feel like kind of an observer sitting in the backseat of the car that is chasing some other car. And uh, that includes a lot of emotions that are evoked. That's one of the things that I've taken from the literature, whether in childhood or in adulthood. Everybody knows that feeling of being utterly immersed in a story. Yes, and it's an interesting um, phenomenon because overall it's positive. But it includes a lot of negative emotions also, often like with these ups and downs of stories with conflict and stuff, and you're afraid that the positive uh, character does not succeed in the end. Bad things happen to good people sometimes in stories, but still the experience as a whole is pleasurable and not only it fun, but often you feel that you've learned something or it's, it was kind of a good experience to go through this with the characters or so. What then is narrative persuasion and how does it work? 
could you maybe share some relevant examples, whether from from your research or from from elsewhere within uh, the literature? Narrative persuasion is attitude or behavior change in response to stories. And that happens if you want it to be changed or not. That's the basic idea behind narrative persuasion. So people usually approach a movie or a novel because they want to be entertained. Often it's not to get informed or to get persuaded. But it's not intentional. It happens nonetheless. Sometimes people tell me like, yeah, narrative persuasion is interesting, but that's not a thing for me because I don't read books for that purpose. And I'm saying, yeah, yes, but it can happen anyway, even if it's fictional and fictional is interesting because it's invented, right? So uh, people invent stuff and, and my attitudes get changed. So that's kind of a phenomenon. Why are fictional stories persuasive at all? That's the, the question. And, and one answer is it's not psychologically relevant whether it's fiction or nonfiction. They can recall, yes, that's fictional. So they don't forget it in a sense that it's erased but they forget it while they're transported into the story world because it makes no difference. We are not processing it with another like part of the brain, let's say, processing the information in a very similar way as non-fictional information. A lot of people cry when, when uh, they're watching fictional stories. In movies, for example, there was a Kleenex study uh, several years ago that we cited. And it's one of the, the main reasons people cry or situations in which people cry in fictional Hollywood movies and the movie theater. Are these tears the same as compared to when you learn about real things in the media, for example, or stuff happens to you personally and you're, you're crying? At least it's pretty close to these uh, strong emotional responses that we have. That's a fascinating thing that uh, fictional stories can do that. And usually, like psychologists, communication scientists, they manipulate story content. What kinds of stories lead to more persuasion? Or you could compare stories to non-stories. They have a similar content, for example, but one is the story and the other is a list of arguments. And then you observe the attitude change and the changes in behavior. A thing that you can manipulate easily is uh, context, information like fiction, non-fiction, or whether people have read positive or negative review about, for example, a movie. People who uh, read a positive review, they have more positive expectations, and these expectations translate into higher transportation. They are more transported into it. And that should also have, as, as usually it has, uh, also an effect on this persuasion. So what we did is, for example, like in a climate change story, we, we manipulated how trustworthy a character is who gives climate-relevant information within the story world, and it interacted with how deeply involved they were in the story world, like how transported they were in the story world. Yeah, it's fascinating. I suppose there's, there's an interesting thing about fictional stories as well, based on our expectations going in, the kind of suspension of disbelief that we enter that situation with. No vehicle can go at warp speed, and yet I accept it every time. Yeah, and and, uh, and my point would be there is no disbelief. Like, we start with belief. People are open to all these different possibilities. So there are, of course, limitations. It must make sense within the story world. Or at least people shouldn't have time to think about it. A lot of detective stories don't make sense. If you think that through, it doesn't make sense at all. 
but you don't have the time to think about that because the editing is done well and you go with the flow and people are not that critical. That's one uh, one part of the story, let's say. And the other part of the story is stories are not always more persuasive. It's not always better to tell a story. And overall, it can be very effective to have these lists of arguments also. Stories have a, a certain power, but in many, many studies, they say they're not always more persuasive. And one reason is that you don't get the message. For example, you have a message about climate change, but people don't get the message. A story about climate change is also about people's desires, like a love story within a future world where like climate change is very bad. That could be one scenario. People process that relationship of these characters, but not this whole scenario that maybe the author thought would make us more sensitive towards climate change possibilities. So people don't get the message or process the message on a very secondary note. That could be one reason why uh, some stories are not more persuasive than arguments. We've talked about when stories are not the best option or that that's not a kind of absolute. But what about when it does prove to be more persuasive? What happens then? And could you give an example? Maybe I give an example where this research was brought into practice. And the way they did it is they used Bandura's social cognitive theory with uh, role models, uh, people who are ignorant in the beginning, but then care about a topic in the end. They inserted these stories, for example, into radio soap operas in Africa. That was a major way to communicate and for entertainment until recently. So they worked with professional screenwriters and they had storylines that were, for example, about reconciliation between groups or uh, health practices, for example. That uh, approach is called entertainment education. And these are stories, and they have these transitional characters, like people who were ignorant, but then change because within the story world, things happen that convince them. These studies are very applied because it's the real mainstream, very popular radio soap operas where this content is inserted, let's say, like made part of this main storyline. And then they asked uh, hundreds of people who were exposed and others who were not exposed in experimental designs, and that was successful. So there are many successful stories about these very applied entertainment education programs. So they hear someone else learning a lesson and in doing so learn the lesson themselves. Exactly. And what I liked about these studies is that they're theory-based in a way that they were thinking like, what should that story exactly be like based on social cognitive theory in order to convince people? Uh, social cognitive theory is based on conditioning, uh, operant conditioning a little bit at least. So there should be rewards for these characters when they uh, transition and do the right thing, let's say. For those people who didn't get the message for some reason, they also often have a summary in the end. What was the story about? What's the main message? So it worked on different levels, like in this story, but also in your face, deliberate summary of what the message was. That has also the potential to backfire, right? Who wants to be preached upon like that? But it worked. You raise a very important caveat that the moment someone realizes that there's a persuasion attempt happening, they uh, build a barrier to it, right? Yes, yeah, so that's also one of the things that I studied. If people don't counter-argue, what are negative responses to stories? I think that people feel like if it's a very emotional story, that that's kind of corny, that's over-sentimental. 
So that's a response to very cheesy storylines. It doesn't feel right. It has a great potential to elicit these awkwardness reactions and responses. Effective resistance to stories. What attributes might make one narrative more persuasive than another? Maybe two things. One is narrativity. The more story-like a story is, and the, the better it is told, the more transported people get and the, the bigger the impact. And the second thing is that the content must somehow be connected to the attitude you want to change or you measure in the first place. If the storyline is just remotely related to vaccination, let's say, then the, the impact would be smaller than if it's a real central part of the storyline. What role does truth play in the world of narrative persuasion? Yeah, truth is a, is a difficult concept. What, uh, what are you thinking of when you're using that word, if I may ask? Uh, dominant perceptions of reality. Scientific consensus or something like that. Sure, that could be an example, yeah. There are different things that pop up in my mind. So uh, one thing is that erosion of truth, this subjectivity of truth, that it seems that even blatant lies are communicated to be truths. And people at least pretend that they follow uh, these lies. That's one of the major topics of our times, I think, that selective exposure and uh, and confirmation bias uh, leads people to accept very different truths and also truths that are far away from scientific evidence. That's a big, uh, I think, a big problem um, that hinders development of our societies. Another thing is narrative persuasion can happen. No one wants it. People want to get entertained. The screenwriters uh, want to entertain people, but still they're persuaded about something like even racist stuff because all the perpetrators have a certain ethnicity. No one wants that. Not the people who get persuaded, not the screenwriters. So everyone who's telling a story should also think about the message there and how, how does this reflect reality, let's say. It's an obligation to, to people who tell mass-mediated stories that that reflects reality in a certain way. Being fair to minorities, for example, and not telling stories that are in conflict with the scientific evidence, for example. Is storytelling a way of betrayal because it's sending messages under the critical radar of people? Is it unethical to tell stories? It's a good question. So people have to answer that question for themselves, I think. Why don't we uh, convince people with, uh, with arguments instead? There are reasons, uh, maybe. Uh, and climate change is a big, big, big topic. Maybe we can reach some people with stories that we cannot reach with arguments. So that could be justified for the good or the bad. I don't, uh, I don't think that it's always a good thing to, to tell stories. Probably often it's not a good thing. Uh, in these applied settings. If we think about like wars and, and struggles and all these big issues that we have today, I'm not sure that stories are always the best way to communicate things. But it's used and it's probably effective. What's the single most important aspect of communication that we should be paying attention to in our communication endeavors? I think we should think about the audience. Who do you want to address? In climate change, many people kind of know what's going on. 
but still uh, we're in a in a less than good situation. So how does that connect? Who do we want to address anyway and with which message? That's the single most important question. Conversely, what's the biggest mistake that you see communicators make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? I think one big mistake is the negativity that comes with it. I think that's not only with stories, but uh, with communication generally. Climate change is a threat. And if it's just processed as a threat, people deny it. I think a positive spin to it, like a story-like thing, just to think about how could we transition to a more climate-aware society to imagine how would inner cities look like if there were less cars. You can find a lot of situations where a positive future, like something that people think, yes, that is something that I would like, even if it wouldn't be helpful for the climate. Something like that, that's very positive, and we can achieve it not communicating these positive aspects of climate-aware societies, uh, that's a big, big, big mistake. I really enjoyed talking to Marcus for this episode. Narrative persuasion is a field that I am deeply fascinated by, so it was a real treat to dig into it with such a knowledgeable guest. But what in particular stuck with you from our conversation? What will you take from it and apply to your own work? For me, more than anything, it was Marcus's words of caution. First, that telling stories might not always be the best approach. Increasingly, it seems, we in the climate sphere are encouraged to turn to stories to achieve our goals, and for good reason. But I appreciate Marcus flagging that, though they might be an effective means in many cases, that is not an absolute. Next, that stories can have unintended consequences. This took me back to my conversation with Josephine Latou-Sampth in a previous episode and her efforts to change people's perceptions of those experiencing the worst effects of the climate crisis. If we only tell stories in which people are victims, that is what they will remain. The stories that we tell shape our reality. And that brings me to another issue that Marcus raised. If stories do indeed shape attitudes, behaviours and thus reality, then as storytellers, we bear significant responsibility when it comes to what we put out into the world. The stories might be fictional, but the consequences could be very real. So that's what I'll be taking with me. But how about you? What did you hear? What will you be incorporating into your communications endeavours? Thanks to Marcus Apple for sharing his time and expertise with the show. It was great. You can find some links to relevant resources in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. If you enjoyed this episode, why not leave it a rating or a review? You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts or by subscribing so you never miss out. You can find Communicating Climate Change on LinkedIn too. And if you think the series would be of interest to friends or colleagues, why not point them in the right direction? Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits to help us develop the skills and the discretion that we'll need for this important task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.